Let's go on to Dr. Lowenthal's case. Okay, well, this is currently a 58-year-old female who in November of 1988, 18 years ago at age 40, had a right modified radical mastectomy for a moderately differentiated 3-centimeter invasive ductal carcinoma with three regional nodes involved. She was strongly ERPR positive. She was treated at that time with CAF for six cycles, inducing a menopausal state, and then tamoxifen for five years. She did well until May of 2000, when she recurred with a right pleural effusion and a positive bone scan showing asymptomatic bilateral rib metastases. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself, what her lifestyle family situation was like, and how she did react 12 years later when she had metastatic disease? Uh, homemaker, emotional as her baseline status, and this clearly was quite stressful. Came as a shock to her, really out of the blue, so many years down the road. And so I was anxious to sort of ease her back into therapy with the least toxic approach that we could have. Now, how did she do on the original adjuvant chemotherapy? My recollection is she did well. It was okay. It was emotionally hard, but we got her through it. And what exactly were her symptoms at the time that she recurred? Relatively asymptomatic, Neil. We did routine markers on her, although I, it was many years out. I think I was doing them like twice a year. And markers were up and then scanned her and picked up her pleural effusion and, and bone meds on the scan. And she was pretty much asymptomatic at that time. So basically you picked her up through the markers? Pretty much, pretty much. Dan, how would you be thinking through management in this case? And do you use markers in this situation? Well, sometimes they were a value, and this is where it was a value. But many times you have false positives, which are a tremendous headache and tremendous anxiety both to the patient and the doctor. So now this patient had previously gotten CAF and then five years of tamoxifen, and now it's many years past that. There are a couple of issues that I would have thought about. At age 40 and under, the FARBA people had reported San Antonio, I believe it was two years ago, an increased risk of BRCA. And if she's receptive positive, one would think more BRCA2 than BRCA1, which is classically triple negative. So a good family history is of great concern and perhaps testing anyway, because we also have that other issue with the ovaries in a young woman. This, to me, is most likely probably a luminal A patient, and these patients are almost analogous to follicular lymphoma, and they respond, but they have a chronic relapsing pattern over time, and I'm not even sure if they're curable but they're very hormonally sensitive. So again, on rebiopsy, I assume that she would have the same types of phenotyping and would be responsive then to hormonal manipulation. What hormonal therapy would you be thinking about? I assume at this point she is postmenopausal, but I Postmen- don't yeah. Postmenopausal, then the easiest choice of therapies would be an AI in this situation. Cliff? I would for sure treat with an AI. I wouldn't consider another approach, and I'd put her on a bisphosphonate. So you want to carry on with what happened? So at that time, we started her on Arimidex and Aridia, and in June of 2002, we transitioned her to Zometa. In October of 2002, markers again started to go up. Reevaluation of the extent of her disease revealed asymptomatic bone-only disease. So she'd been on the Arimidex about two years two at years. that point? And we switched her Can to... Can you just clarify bone-only disease or bone-only progression? Bone-only progression. No real new disease, Cliff. Just her marker was going up. Consistently. She had bone-only disease before. Right. So her scans look different or the same? Same. Oh, okay. So her scans look the same, but her markers are Same with the rising marker. Okay. 
Would that be enough to get you to switch therapy, Cliff? Not for me, not in this situation. I know she's probably got progression. I'm not disputing that. But as Dan just pointed out, an indolent kind of breast cancer, there's no emergency to change the therapy. And one has to remember that we are palliating metastatic breast cancer. We're not curing it. And so I would sit tight because I'd rather not burn up therapies. She'll declare herself sooner or later. Did she have her markers drop on the Arimidex? She did. In other words, if it was a consistent enough pattern that the markers had been way up and they dropped way down and now they're back way up, you still wouldn't change therapy, Cliff? Not the first time. I watch very stubbornly these people because you can find yourself in these kinds of patients in a situation in six months where you've gone through two or three hormone therapies, you have an asymptomatic patient, and you seemingly have run out of therapeutic options. And at that point, what you end up doing is just ignoring the marker and leaving them on the last hormone anyway. So, so what happened? Well, it was an easy change. We switched it to aromacin, and four months later, her markers were still going up. And so at that point in time, I switched it to Zolota, again, wanting to keep her as long as I could on sort of the IV chemo-free interval. And at that time, I put her on standard dose Zolota. She had severe toxicity, severe hand, foot, Mm -hmm. mucositis, diarrhea, requiring us to withhold the Zolota until they all resolved. And then I ended up restarting her on a dose schedule that most people are probably using now, low-dose Zolota. And in fact, for her, it was just one gram BID, to which she had an excellent response. Response in terms of what? The markers again? Markers went way down, and she felt great. And that response persisted for some time. Just as an aside, in December of '04, she came down with osteonecrosis of the jaw. Can you talk about how that presented? Yeah, pain. Jaw pain, independent of any dental procedure or intervention. And when you looked in her mouth, what did you see? I didn't see much. I didn't see much, but I sent her to her dentist. So she just came in saying, my jaw hurts. Yep, like you a toothache, like a toothache. So we stopped her somata. And what was the evaluation from the dentist? Osteonecrosis of the bone way back in the mandible. And we did a number of things then. I mean, this was sort of early on when we were first starting to see these cases. It was the first case I had had in a breast cancer patient. And we went through things like antibiotics, the oral antibiotic rinses. She went for a course of hyperbaric oxygen. And basically, even to this day, she still has an area of exposed bone, but her pain is gone. She feels well in that regard, and I have not rechallenged her with a bisphosphonate. It's been said that the antibiotics often relieve the pain. Is that what happened with her? Pretty much. Pretty much. The antibiotics, the mouth rinses. She went for some very gentle debridement from the oral surgeon. Minimal stuff. Shaving off the rough edges just to get that area more comfortable for her. Cliff, what's your experience been with ONJ? So I've personally been lucky. I haven't had a patient develop it, but on our team, we have a handful of cases and our dentists have collected a large number. So I can't speak with any authority on this. Dan? I've been lucky. I've only had one, although our group has had quite a few of these, not necessarily related to dental intervention, and we're not quite sure. We were burned. Bad pain, very poor quality of life, some response to antibiotics, nothing great, and at least the lady I have now is still miserable. And we don't know how long to continue the bisphosphonate, but we've been burned and we get nervous after about six months of it. So we've actually put in a policy now where we recommend for our team stopping after 24 months. 
No, we're even more chicken, six months. After what period of time, Cliff? 24 months of continuous monthly treatment. Oh, and then stop? Well, we slow down to infrequent dosing. How infrequent? Generally twice a year to three or four times a year, depending on the case. The clinicians still want some liberty to decide what to do, and the truth is we have no data. But philosophically, we went from a position of saying, well, one year was better than none, and there was safety data for about two years from the original trials. No evidence of harm, so we'll leave people on it. And now that we have evidence of harm, we say we have to be a little more cautious going beyond the extent of the data. There is a randomized trial that tests intermittent versus continuous dosing after, I think, nine months you're eligible for it. And that's an important randomized trial given how things have developed here. I had the pleasure of interviewing Robert Marks, who's one of the two oral surgeons who described ONJ recently for our breast cancer series. And he made an interesting comment to me, and I was curious whether this is actually happening, which is he said, when a cancer patient is about to be started on an intravenous bisphosphonate before the therapy started, they should see a dentist or oral surgeon to do preventive care, do whatever needs to be done, remove teeth that are problems, et cetera. Is that something that's done in routine practice now? We always ask about dentition. What I don't know is how much follow-up they actually get. There isn't always feedback, at least, that we get from the dentist. Cliff, is that part of your algorithm? Well, we do discuss it all the time now, although I don't know how routinely that's implemented. I have to add, although it may make sense, I'm not aware of any evidence that says that any preventative treatment has any bearing on the risk. I guess one of his thoughts was if something needed to be done, it'd be better to do it before they got started on the bisphosphonate. We have a policy in our office, send them to the dentist who think about it. Interesting. I'm doing it too, but I don't know how long to wait if they have a procedure done, how long do you wait then before you start it? That's a major issue because the drug stays in the body forever. And in fact, when you look how the monthly schedule was originally developed, it was developed from hypercalcemia, looking at both calcium and bone enzymes, and the effects seem to wear off after about a month. So we really don't know in this setting when it's safe and when to use it. Yeah, I think this is an area that really we need good standards of care that we can all follow and adhere to. And parenthetically, I would just tell you that I Google this before the meeting, knowing that this case might come up. And if you Google it with ONJ and breast cancer or myeloma, a number of websites come up, many of which are registration sites for the class action lawsuits <laughs> that are now in progress. So it's really an area that I think needs good standards of care. You know, one of the things this guy pointed out to me is the incredible benefit that those bisphosphonates have had and how they've changed, you know, the face of breast cancer and cancer in general. I see you're nodding your head. I feel strongly about this. When all of us in this room, I think, were in training, hypercalcemia and intractable bone pain and long-term admissions for those problems were common. And I ask my team this all the time. When's the last time we had a difficult-to-control hypercalcemic? So let's carry on. Let's carry on with the case. In March of 05, the markers started going up again. Reevaluation showed one new area of bone only disease. We went back to her original tissue and checked for HER2 overexpression, and indeed there was amplification by fish. So I put her then again looking to avoid the IV chemo on Faslodex and her septin. It's a novel approach. Four months later, her markers were still going up, so I switched her to a weekly. Taxol and Herceptin. She had a severe Taxol reaction to the first treatment. When you say severe reaction, what happened? Severe erythema, tachycardia, hypotension. She had gotten pre-medications, of course. Gotten pre-medications before, standard pre-meds. So needless to say, we tried switching her to Taxotere, and surprisingly, she had a severe reaction to that as well. Again, what exactly happened? Very similar reaction. Not quite Mm -hmm. as severe, but similar to the point that We had to make a decision, do we give up on the taxanes in general, or do we offer her Braxane? 
Had she had her two done before? No, because back in 88, we weren't doing it. And I did it at a point in time where we first thought we might want to start Herceptin. We went back on her original tissue. And she was mostly bone only. We didn't do it on her pleural effusion. And it would not have been so easy to grab a biopsy for her. Cliff, can you comment on the issue of reactions to taxanes and spider pre-medications? How often have you seen that? Well, there's a couple percent. No matter what you do in terms of the pre-medications, hypersensitive reactions remain a dilemma. Dan, any comment? The hypersensitivity reactions are two forms. The most common form is the diluent. And in the case of Cremaphore for pachytaxel and then tween 80 for docetaxel. However, there are patients who also have hypersensitivity reactions to taxane. So that if you fail one by allergic reaction and then challenge with the other and have a problem, there is that possibility. And we had two cases where we tried to challenge them with a Braxane and we got into trouble. So I don't know how this will end. But When you say got into trouble, what They had allergic reactions. Allergic reaction to a Braxane? After being allergic to pachytaxel and docetaxel. They have a true taxane allergy, I guess. We always call these hypersensitivity-like reactions during the development era of paclitaxel and docetaxel because they weren't true HSRs, but what you're describing in the second case is. Mm -hmm. What do you think Mm -hmm. this is? This, to me, I don't know. It could go either way. She could be allergic to either of the solvents or she could be... So what happened? So we ended up offering her low-dose weekly Abraxane, and actually for the first treatment, we did pre-medicate her, and she did fine. Mm-hmm. And we've actually gotten her off the pre-meds. She's been on a weekly program now with her septin, doing unbelievably. Her tumor markers have completely normalized. Her scans are better. And actually, in April of 06, we decided to discontinue chemotherapy and maintain her on every three-week Herceptin alone. And she's been doing great to the present time. Any comments, Cliff? What we're dealing with here is a relatively indolent breast cancer, and I think you're going to find some things that work for the long haul for her. And in the end, I like the fact that she's on single-agent trastuzumab. I think that's a pretty reasonable non-toxic therapy. What has your experience been with nabpaclitaxel, and what situations are you using it? Well, at our center, it's restricted and used to on clinical trials or for patients like this one who've had an adverse event with paclitaxel. In that setting, we've not had significant numbers of patients who cross-reacted, so our patients have largely tolerated as you described. So you don't have access to it under other circumstances. Do you feel that that in any way is depriving your patients of something that they can benefit by? Depends what you mean by benefit. There's no overall survival difference reported for nabpaclitaxel compared to conventional taxanes right now. In terms of palliating stage 4 breast cancer, response rates are generally higher in the data that's available, and to the degree that response rate corresponds to improved palliation, then they may be missing out on something. Time to regression is a little bit longer as well. But in the end, it's unfortunately restricted because of the money. So, Dan, any comments? It's a water-soluble taxane, and taxanes are one of the most useful drugs we have, and that's what I think we see in this case. Its role is there. There's no question there's a role there. It's a recurring issue that we've talked about before, and that's the economics of cancer care, which is a very difficult area, and I'm sure you don't presume to be an expert in that. There are two things that sort of surprised me, and that is this lady had indolent disease, and yet she develops or was her 2 new positive. I don't know what the original biopsy showed, if you were able to do that. And as previously was mentioned earlier, many times on a bone biopsy, which I assume is what you did. Now we went back on the original tumor tissue. Oh, really? To, to get her hair to right. expression. Because, yeah, right, because a bone yeah. biopsy can be yeah. non-diagnostic, as you know. So that was a little bit interesting. 
Yeah, the thing that surprised me was she didn't respond to her septin Faseldex, and then did very well, and is doing very well on her septin alone now, many, many months after the discontinuation of chemotherapy. So again, that surprised me. Yeah, but th- this case is very typical of a hormone-responsive breast cancer that happens to have gotten chemo. Cliff, what were your thoughts about the tandem trial that was presented at the San Antonio meeting that relates to this case and that it was focusing on patients that you are positive or two positive disease? Can you explain what they looked at? Sure. Well, first of all, with respect, Bella Kaufman presented it first at ESMO in Istanbul. It was an update by John Mackey at San Antonio. So tandem is a modestly sized trial of 200-something patients where first-line therapy was anastrozole or anastrozole plus trastuzumab. We've been waiting for it for several years because although they adequately accrued it finally, the last few events needed to have statistical significance came in very, very slowly. I say this because, in fact, we have heard rumors of reports of the trial several years ago, and we've all been waiting and waiting. What they saw was a relatively modest time to progression for anastrozole alone. Most of us think of first-line hormone therapy in the stage 4 setting for ER-positive breast cancers getting you 6 to 12 months to give you a broad range, right? And in fact, what they got here was 2.4 months. If you're a glass half full person, you say, yeah, when they added trastuzumab, they doubled it to 4.8 months. Neither number is especially impressive for ER ER-positive breast cancer. There's a nuance to it. The group of people who actually got trastuzumab, about 15% of them approximately have stable disease out beyond four years. So it does suggest that there's a subset of ER ER-positive breast cancer given trastuzumab who will react in a way parallel to your case where they'll just develop very stable disease when you give both. Unanswered in this study is what happens if you actually sequentially do the AI and then give trastuzumab. This was asked directly at the microphone at San Antonio without, I mean, it wasn't controlled for that sequence, so we don't really know. One point, though, that comes up, and a place where the case you're describing sounds a little bit different, is while about 50% of HER2-positive tumors are ER-positive, the low response seen in this tandem trial is consistent with the observation at the molecular level that while they're ER positive, they're not that positive. So if you look at the expression of ER in the HER2 positives, it clusters to the low end. It's not typical to have a truly strongly ER positive tumor with HER2 positivity, and that's part of the explanation for the low response rate for the AI alone arm even in the tandem trial. So that's a long answer. I'll tell you what you're really driving at, Neil, is Cliff, do you give AI and trastuzumab, and I have to say I generally don't, because the one nice thing about the AI therapy right now for the patients who benefit is it's oral therapy and they're not tied up, and in this case, you'd say, well, she's on a bisphosphonate maybe anyway, so it doesn't matter, but it's another tether to the clinic if you put them on IV therapy, and given that we don't know the value of crossover and it might be just as good, I think that you're fine to hold off and give hormone therapy until you have to move along. I guess the one thing I've heard after people seeing that tandem data is if you are going to use endocrine therapy or an AI alone, maybe watch the patient pretty carefully. Is that a message that you... Yeah, I do agree with that, although I would say we always did. Because of the low ER status, there have been clinicians who have argued for years that such patients should start with systemic cytotoxic therapy anyway, regardless of being ER positive. And so whenever I use hormone therapy first line in a HER2 positive patient, I tend to be watching them pretty closely. And I usually, in my consult, discuss this with them. Interestingly, I'll just say from a regulatory point of view, this issue comes up because there are some in the regulatory world who think that the chemotrastuzumab data is so compelling that you ought to be getting that rather than hormone therapy, and certainly rather than hormone therapy plus trastuzumab, for example. And this is an issue that there's no data for that at all or for that position, but people do harbor that belief. 
Dan, any comments about this issue of chemotherapy trastuzumab shows a survival advantage when used up front? Maybe that's what patients like this should get as opposed to starting out with either hormone therapy or hormone therapy with trastuzumab. Well, for indolent disease, I've always tried to use a non-cytotoxic approach. And even if it were substantially bulky, let's say bone disease, where before the San Antonio, I would think about using combination Herceptin with an endocrine manipulation and then stopping one or the other. But the data in that tandem trial, I thought, was very disappointing. Chemotherapy, again, we all have patients that seem to be long-term survivors, but they are few and far between. So in the metastatic setting, I would still start with the hormone. 